Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our reading of scripture today comes from Jeremiah 9, 17 through 24. Listen to what God is saying. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for the skilled women to come. Let them quickly raise a dirge over us so that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ears receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a dirge, and each to her neighbor a lament. Death has come into your windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus says the Lord. Human corpses shall fail like dung upon the open field, like sheaves behind the reaper, and no one shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. This is the word of God. Good morning, friends. My name is Christian Kuhn. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Urban Village, and I'm usually hanging out at the South Loop site. It is uh, always good when I get a chance to come and visit some of the other services, and I'm always really happy to come down to Hyde Park Woodlawn, too. So it's uh, really great to be with you here today. Um, it's been in a, about four or five years ago uh, when I was, uh, there's an annual gathering every June of United Methodists called Annual Conference, and I was at this gathering, and my wife was texting me to let me know there seemed to be something wrong with our dog named Stella. Uh, Stella was about uh, 12 years old, so was getting on in years, and so my wife took Stella to the vet, and we were uh, learning and discovering that uh, Stella, sadly, was probably getting to the end of her life, uh, and that what she had, we would uh, probably have to put her down. So I came home, and we went to the vet one more time, and it confirmed that that was in case uh, going to happen. And so we decided that um, it was going to happen when we realized that Stella really was um, uh, living her last days. And so I took her to the vet uh, uh, one night uh, to, to do this. And so we had to wake our kids up so that they could say goodbye uh, to their beloved friend. And so as they were down there and they were both crying, they were at the time probably about 13 and 8. And so um, they were crying and they had their arms around Stella. And so my son asked me a question and he said, what's going to happen? And so at first I thought, well, this is a natural question that he wants to bring up. Like, how does this whole process work? And so I 
began to explain the process of putting a, a pet down. And so he said, no, what's going to happen to us? Which was just a heart-wrenching, to this day, it just it wrenches my heart <laughs> to think about that question. He wanted to know what's going to happen to us without our dog in our lives. And that's a really powerful question. I think it's a question perhaps that so many ask when they think about the loss of a loved one. What's going to happen to us? There are natural questions that people will ask, and we are in this sermon series that we're just starting today. Uh, we kind of wrestled a little bit about what to call We knew we wanted to do a sermon series on death and dying, and we wanted to be upfront and honest with it, so we came up with the uh, not terribly creative sermon series called Everybody Dies. Uh, but we really want to explore and talk about death and dying. Uh, you'll hear sermons about heaven and hell. We'll talk about the gathering of the saints in our midst and what does that mean. But today I want to start off by talking about grief and talking about and reflecting on that question, what's going to happen to us? in this process. And I'm grateful for Ashley's testimony uh, already kind of beginning to uh, share some of those reflections with us today. Well, we read, I want to first focus on this scripture uh, that Rich read for us today from the book of Jeremiah, give you a little bit of context of what's going on. I really need to give a shout out to an Old Testament uh, scholar named uh, Dr. Will Gaffney, who wrote a blog post, really helpful blog post, specifically on this passage and what's going on that we read in this passage from Jeremiah. So we see here a whole nation that is grieving. Uh, everything that they thought their promised land was being torn apart. Jerusalem, the center of all that they knew, is being torn apart, and they've had to, to leave their homes. And so there's shame in leaving this, but also the destruction that has taken place of their city, their tabernacles, and all that they thought that they had was lost. So having to leave those places, and also there were some in their midst who were not only mourning physical places, but mourning the place of their body. So many men, women were taken advantage of and raped and tortured in the process. So there is deep, deep sadness and grief that is being expressed here in this passage. But one thing I also want to lift up in this uh, chapter of Jeremiah is they are not the only ones who are lamenting and grieving what they have lost. We read a little bit earlier in chapter 9 that God is also grieving and lamenting in the midst of this. If you read through all of Jeremiah 9, you will read some passages where God is in judgment mode, and God seems to be somewhat angry at what's going on here. And I think sometimes when we read about certain passages in the Older Testament of God, and uh, there is this image of God as angry or judgmental. But also, I think sometimes we forget that there is also God showing lament and remorse. Jeremiah 9, 9 and 10 says this, God saying, I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. They are desolate and untraveled and the lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds have all fled and the animals have gone. God is expressing God's deep grief and lament here. God's heart is breaking. God is expressing this to the people in their midst, just as they are experiencing this grief of loss and all that they thought they had and have no more. So how do they express this further? 
How do they go about this whole process of lament? Well, sometimes, perhaps if you have had loss in your life or grieved, and there are times when there are no words, and you don't quite know what to say or how to respond or how to act, and the people in this time of Jeremiah were experiencing the same thing, and so they actually had women who would walk beside them. And we read about them in the passage here today. Again, Dr. Gaffney talks about this profession that was passed down from woman to woman throughout generations. There were initiates or trainees who were called daughters, and there were guild directors called mothers, and they were the mourners' guild. They were trained and paid to perform the public ritual of funerals. They were funeral directors. They were grief counselors. And they would be there, and they would walk with those who were walking, and they would weep and wail with the family. They would sing and chant hymns. They created space and community so that the family could grieve, too, without embarrassment. They were there to perhaps express all the different emotions and feelings and wail and cry if they could not do it themselves, and they would put it all out there. I think sometimes in our society, people are afraid to grieve, afraid to truly express what they are going through. In these days, certainly of social media, where we expect people to live a certain emotion or have certain things and then get over it pretty quickly. Or sometimes on the news, if we see these, particularly I've seen so many shots of mothers who have lost their loved ones to gun violence, and we show just five seconds of this grieving mother, and then we shoot to see what's the weather going to be like tomorrow. And we don't experience the deep sense of loss that these folks are feeling. I once um, spent a summer as a chaplain at a hospital here in the Chicago area. Uh, for those who are uh, familiar with seminary or been through seminary, there's something called clinical pastoral education, CPE. And you are often put into uh, a setting where there is more intense pastoral care that one needs to give. And so I spent it at a hospital for the summer. This was at Lutheran General Hospital in the suburbs. And one of the things for chaplains at this hospital uh, is if, especially if someone comes through the emergency room and it's a particular tragedy that the chaplain is the one who tells the family that their loved one has died. And so for me, I was still in seminary, and I think most seminarians are, go through the process of who am I? Who am I to be present in situations like these? And I certainly was experiencing that too and learned quickly. So there was one particular day where there was a large family that came in through the emergency room, and the father, the patriarch of this family, had had a heart attack. And so they had escorted them into the ER, and they did their best, and the family was all in the waiting room. There were probably about 20 people in this waiting room. And sadly, the, the man died. And so it was up to me to go in and tell the family what had happened. One thing I didn't know, I learned just as I was about ready to enter into the room, that this was an Orthodox Jewish family. And I had very little experience of interfaith uh, communications or pastoral care, and so I went in and, and did my best and told them this news, and immediately, immediately they started, I mean, literally wailing and expressing their grief and sobbing and crying, and I was just not used to this. I was used to more kind of polite crying, 
or small sobs here and there. But these folks would have none of that. They wailed. They cried out. You could tell their hearts were understandably breaking at what was happening in their midst. And I was so taken aback, and I didn't know what to do, so I kind of went over and kind of wedged my way in between two individuals and did my best to kind of give them little pats on the shoulder. And I could tell pretty quickly that they did not want me there. <laughs> they wanted to go on with their grieving. In fact, someone kind of turned to me and said, maybe it's best if you leave. So I walked out of there feeling like I have failed <laughs> as a pastoral caregiver. But they needed their space to grieve in the way that they felt like they should, to cry out to God in their own way. How, why is this happening? And as I look back on that, I appreciate their ability to do that. Because, as I noted, so often in our society, we stop ourselves. Or maybe we just don't have experience. We may think that there should be a, a certain way that we are to grieve. That there, aren't there steps somewhere that we are to do, and yet we are at a loss. There's a really powerful poem by W.H. Auden called either Stop the Clocks or Funeral Blues. Maybe you've heard of part of this. I want to read just part of this poem who talks about the loss of a loved one. And the poem goes like this. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum. Bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky, the message, he is dead. That feeling where you are numb and don't know how to respond, and then, understandably, you want the whole world to stop, too, and acknowledge what has happened in your own life. And then, Again, thinking, is there something I'm supposed to do? Is there a right way to grieve? Should I cry? Should I hold it in? Should I tell others? Should I just do this on my own? So many things go through our minds when we experience this grieving process. And yes, there are stages. Some have named. You may be familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. And they talk about these stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so when people think that there are stages, okay, I can handle that, then they may think, well, there's, it's, a, it's a linear process, perhaps. I'm supposed to first go through denial, and then anger, and then there's bargaining. But that's not the way it works. I mean, there may be these stages, but you may jump from one to another. You may create other stages along the way, and you realize it's not linear at all, but it is all over the place. And that's the thing that I think we want folks to understand and embrace about this whole process. I think when we see grief or we experience it ourselves and we have that urge if we start to cry or we start to sob and we want to say, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for having to have you experience this grief that I'm experiencing. And we want people to do their best. Don't apologize. Throughout this is to acknowledge and embrace and to name the fact that you are feeling things. To accept these feelings. To feel these feelings. 
if it doesn't go through this certain stage, if you're not going point to point through this process, that's absolutely normal and okay. You are experiencing humanity. You may be angry. You may be jealous. You may be all kinds of different things in your own life. And you are hopefully okay with embracing what's going on in your own life and throughout this process. So what to do? We have a, a series of booklets that I have sometimes throughout my ministry sent out to folks who have experienced loss. And as I was reading through these this week, there are things that one can do to help get them through this process, like maybe writing a letter to a loved one who has died. Or maybe it's talking out loud to this loved one, having a conversation with them. And again, there might be that instinct, well, that seems silly to do this. But so many have been helped by going through this kind of experience. Certainly, I'm so grateful for Ashley's words when she said, it's okay to accept love, to talk to a trusted caregiver or a trusted friend, and don't apologize for receiving that love that they want to give. And then if you are the one who is supporting the one who is grieving to do your best to be there, not only in the days after this loss, but also marking your calendars three months, six months, a year after that date so that you can check in with them and say, how are you doing? And then if someone comes up to you and says, a year later, two, five years later, and you start crying again, that's okay. That's part of what this grieving process is about. It is not easy. But trusting that there are others with you and the God who has lamented throughout the history of creation also laments and grieves with you too. We have been experiencing this very vividly at our South Loop site. Uh, some of you know last February, one of our beloved uh, members died by suicide. And we're still kind of uh, dealing with this. And there are some folks who, uh, it's hard for them to come to church because it reminds them of Lex. And the really interesting thing that uh, was happening to so many of us too, especially uh, for those who were closest to her and to myself, who I was trying to be that pastoral presence for her, she was experiencing depression, living with depression. And uh, Lex grew up uh, in Guam. And one of the interesting things for me in, experience, in going through all of this too was to providing pastoral care for people I'd never known before. Through social media, I would wake up in the morning and look at my phone and these messages would be pouring in through Facebook from people I didn't know, people who lived in Guam who were asking those understandable questions, how could this happen? Lex was so full of life. She seemed to be always full of joy, and we can't understand why this is happening. So I was doing my best to be present and to share with them the experiences perhaps that Lex was feeling and also trying to be present for them too. But there was just so much mystery and so much difficulty for people to come to grips with what exactly was happening in the midst of this. And still to this day now, it's been seven months later, ten or eight months later, and people are still wrestling. How do I respond in the midst of this grief? I was looking at my phone. For me, one of the ways of coping with Lex's death is 
uh, after a certain amount of time, I will usually delete text messages off my phone to save a little bit of space uh, on my phone. Uh, but the texts that I sent with Lex, I still keep on there, including the final text that I exchanged with her up until the day she died. And as I was reaching out to her about a week beforehand, and I was checking in and seeing, how, how are you doing? And she was honest with me. She said, not so great. And she had experienced some interest in this prayer group that we were going to do at, at South Loop, and I was going to visit her. And I said, is there anything that I can bring? There's that feeling like, what can I do to, to make you feel better? And I texted her, and I said, what can I bring for you? And she texted back. She said, just bring yourself. That's more than necessary. And that phrase has stuck with me, and I keep it on my phone. Just yourself is more than necessary. And so as you are experiencing this grief yourself, and maybe feeling guilty about certain ways that you are going through the grieving process, or feeling shame for shedding tears, or being hard on yourself for just not getting over it fast enough, to remember that just yourself and the real emotions that you have is more than necessary. When you ask yourself the question, what's going to happen to me, to remember that just being yourself and all of your beautiful, mixed-up emotions is more than necessary. And as you experience this and go through this and have all of these different feelings, knowing that the God who cried out with the Israelites lamenting the loss of their homeland does the same with you now. And God's saying to you that just being yourself is more than necessary. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? It's a good question that we all ask ourselves in moments of loss. And it won't always be answered right away. But I hope and trust that you have the God who will always be with you in the midst of it, in the midst of all those conflicting emotions that you might be having. And I pray, too, that you listen to Ashley's testimony and know that receiving love from a community and from loved ones, that, too, is a way that we can respond to this deep loss that we feel in our own lives. Who you are, who you are is more than necessary. And that, I pray, is what happens to us in the midst of these losses. So we take some time now to reflect on what we've heard today in the midst of testimony and scripture and proclamation. How is God working in our own lives, particularly for those of us experiencing a feeling of loss and grief? <laughs> 